Good evening. All right. <laughs> um, on behalf of the entire chapel community and staff, um, welcome to Duke Chapel tonight for uh, this important conversation. I'm Luke Powery, uh, the dean of the chapel here. And as you know, Duke Chapel is the icon of the university, a ceremonial and concert space. It's also a vibrant center for ecumenical Christian worship, a, a church, and it is also a sanctuary for all people, a place that's open throughout the year for prayer, meditation, quiet reflection. The chapel also acts as a moderator for the diversity of religious identity and expression on campus. Um, as we have administrative oversight of what is known as religious life at Duke, which comprises the nearly two dozen chaplaincies of various faith traditions. And so it's in that role um, as moderator that we are convening these critical conversations here at the crossing, the crossing of this space, at the crossroads, not only of this building, but of society and at the heart of this university. It is in this spirit of a conversation at the crossing that this evening we host the second talk in our Finding Sanctuary speaker series. This series is a part of our year of celebration where we're celebrating the reopening of the chapel, which happened um, last May in 2016. And since the reopening of the chapel, um, as we arrived out of purgatory, <laughs> uh, we have been inviting people to join us in exploring uh, with photos and in other ways what it means to find sanctuary. Um, you can find, as an example, several hundreds of uh, photos on Instagram with the hashtag find sanctuary. Um, hashtag. So check that out uh, if you're on Instagram. The relevance of sanctuary, that notion as a place of safety, a uh, place of refuge and holiness has only intensified over the last few months in the public square. And so in this Finding Sanctuary speaker series, um, if you were here the last time, you will get to hear from four dynamic women. So we had one speaker in February. We have two tonight, and we have one more in April. And all of these speakers are here to reflect publicly on the ways in which their lives and work meet at the intersections of faith-based advocacy and social justice for the common good. This series is spearheaded by the Interfaith engagement program at Duke Chapel under the strong and creative and wise leadership of Associate Dean Christy Lore Sapp. And we are and we're doing this in collaboration with the Penny Pilgrim George Women's Leadership Initiative, which comes out of student affairs. And so we thank them for their support and we thank all of you for being here uh, this evening. And so, without further ado, let me introduce our Associate Dean, Christy Sapp, to introduce our speakers tonight. Let's welcome Christy. Thank 
you, Luke, and thank you all for being here tonight. As Dean Powery said, uh, we welcome you to the second in our Finding Sanctuary speaker series. Um, in addition to support from the Penny Pilgrim George Women's Leadership Initiative and the President's Office, tonight's program is also co-sponsored by the Center for Jewish Studies, Jewish Life at Duke, and the Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity. And we give thanks for our friends in those departments for helping us put this together tonight. So as Luke said, this series has invited four dynamic and religiously diverse women to campus to work at the inter who work at the intersections of principle-based advocacy and social justice. And what better way to commemorate International Women's Day than by hearing from two of these dynamic women and their activism in the LGBTQ community. And I assure you that these two in particular never take a day off from caring about the people that they work with. Um, before I introduce them, let me just uh, share the date for, next, for the next event in this series. If you didn't get one already, already Harper has bookmarks um, to help you remember. Um, Monday, April 24th, we have sick activist and filmmaker and social change agent Valerie Carr coming to address um, issues of gender, religion, and race um, in overcoming hate in America. So we invite you to please plan to join us for that as well. Now for a word about tonight's speakers. The Reverend Heidi Newmark is a Lutheran pastor, community activist, and author. Currently the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church and the director of Trinity Place Shelter on Manhattan's Upper West Side, which you'll hear more about in her talk tonight. She's worked with a peace and justice human rights organization in Argentina. As a pastor in the South Bronx, she was a founding member of an ecumenical community organizing group that trained local leaders, built hundreds of low-cost homes, and established a top-ranked public high school. Her experiences in congregational and community ministry in the Bronx led to a highly acclaimed book, Breathing Space, A Spiritual Journey in the South Bronx. I was telling her this morning that one of our campus ministers here at Duke says that um, reading that book is what made him decide to go into ministry. Her most recent book, Hidden Inheritance, is about the discovery of her Jewish roots and the story of her grandfather who died um, in a concentration camp. Rabbi Sara Pascal Orlo is the director of spiritual care at Hebrew Senior Life. In this position, she established the nation's only Jewish accredited accredited geriatric clinical pastoral education program, which has for the past two years um, an advanced unit in LGBTQ aging. For the past three years, she's been a leading LGBTQ aging, um, she's been leading an initiative in aging in the community through the Hebrew Senior Life System of Care, and this was re recently featured in an issue of The Atlantic. Rabbi Sarah was ordained in the conservative movement at the Jewish Theological Seminary and has focused her work on serving people of all backgrounds and denominations. Her latest book is called Deathbed Wisdom of the Hasidic Masters. So I'm going to invite them um, to tell you a little bit about the work they do in two different contexts, one with um, youth and one with elderly, and um, they'll answer some questions about how this intersects with their own faith identities and sense of social justice. And at the end of um, their conversation, we'll open it up to questions from you all. So thank you and welcome. We'll go from, the, from youth to aging. There we go. <laughs> well, thank you. 
Well, it's an honor to be here, and I thank all of you for taking the time to come out. Uh, I think, it, as was mentioned, it's a very timely time with a rise in hate crimes and uh, perhaps it becoming harder for people to find safe spaces. So I'm going to share about the work um, that I do at, uh, through Trinity Place Shelter, which is a shelter for homeless LGBTQ young adults. Um, all of them have become homeless because their families have kicked them out um, to the streets. And in almost every case, it's for religious reasons. Um, in story after story, it's for religious reasons. Um, one young man, um, his, actually Jesus, when he was 13, he came out at the dinner table and his mother jumped up and began stabbing him with her fork while she was yelling, this is a Christian home. Um, recently we had kind of a combination of sanctuary for both um, sexual orientation and um, immigration. A young man from um, Central America, Fernando, when he came out, his mother told him she wished he'd never been born and uh, she was done with him and he was going to hell. Um, she got divorced from his father, and fortunately, his father and brother were very supportive of him, and he moved in with them, but it was in a um, small rural village in, in this country, in Central America. And one of his brothers was in a gang, and the gang somehow found out that Fernando was gay and put a hit out on him. And the brother came home and told his father, you know, they're gonna kill him. And his father at that time was, was able to get him a visa and he, um, he, came to, he ended up in New York and at our shelter and he was working on um, getting, um, getting asylum. Now, I don't know what's gonna happen with that right now, it's, a, it's up in the air. Um, our shelter is a transitional shelter for young people aged 17 to 24. We can't have people who are younger um, because legally they, they'd have to be in the foster care system. Our population is, it's different from, I think what a lot of people in New York think of or anywhere, someone who's homeless um, because it's very young and 40% of homeless youth across the board uh, identify as being queer, and the number one reason they're homeless is family rejection. Um, one of the things that is probably not surprising is about 40% of the youth we have are transgender um, because they haven't even, um, they face even more discrimination. Uh, and it's also true that 70% of our residents are African American or Latino. The general shelters, uh, at least in New York, do not offer uh, a safe place at all. Um, queer young people are targeted, are assaulted, are uh, abused, and staff just usually turns the other way. More than one of the young people in our shelter has talked about being urinated on while they're sleeping. So a general shelter cannot be a sanctuary. Our mission as a transitional shelter is to provide a safe space and support
for them to exit homelessness. Um, in June, we'll have been open for 11 years, 4,015 nights. Um, our population, about 40% come from New York City, and the rest come from any state around the United States. But I will say there is a heavy concentration from the, from the South. Uh, and I don't know if that means, you know, more discrimination, but that's where we get a lot of people from. And, and from, we've had people from 12 different countries. Our shelter is small for zoning reasons, but being small allows us to provide a, a kind of family-like atmosphere, but a caring and loving family type atmosphere, and a lot of individualized, intensive um, attention and support. So we have 10 beds, but over the time we've been open, we've been able to provide sanctuary for over 550 people, and 83% of them, from what we can figure out, have exited being homeless. Um, when a young person comes to us, they meet with one of our social workers who helps them figure out what are their goals and what it's going to take, what kind of support they need to meet those goals. So and it's very individualized. One thing that's unique about our shelter is that they can stay up to 18 months. Um, there aren't really none of the other shelters. Um, some are you can stay for three months, some are you can stay for six months. But 18 months to really do what's needed to get on your feet is important. And it's going to be harder now. Um, even in New York City, uh, it, in New York State, it's legal to discriminate um, in employment against transgender people. Uh, there, is, um, there is legislation in Albany, our state capital, called GENDA to change that. But if your employer finds out that you're transgender, they can presently, they can legally fire you. Uh, or they can legally refuse to hire you. Uh, and now, of course, there's concern about that getting worse. Um, it's, it's, so it's very frustrating and very difficult and takes a long time for some of our young people to um, get employment. And most of them, they're poor and they can't afford, um, if they wanted, everyone doesn't want that, but they can't afford certain kinds of surgeries and, um, and some people don't wanna identify with either, with you know, a binary gender um, and some people can pass and wanna pass as one gender and some people can't. And it makes it much harder to find a job. Uh, and that it really support is really important because anybody looking for a job, it can get frustrating when you keep getting turned down, but this is just a lot worse. Um, we provide food, we provide um, space for laundry, um, metro cards, which is like our transportation on the subway, uh, individual and group counseling, um, medical and psychiatric care. Um, we have um, collaborations where the young people in our shelter can get free medical and psychiatric care. We have pro a pro bono queer lawyers group that works with the young people in our shelter, uh, financial counseling, 
And um, these are the kind of things that help people be able to leave homelessness. Um, but just providing sanctuary um, in a particular space is not enough. Uh, I remember one transgender woman when we first opened from Utah, Nikki, she came from a Mormon community in Utah that did not accept her. And we have a piano and one night she, she was playing the piano really beautifully and I commented on it and she looked up and she said, this is the only place I feel human. And on the one hand, you know, it could make us feel good that she felt this was a sanctuary for her. Um, she was able to move out, move on with her life, was doing really well. And eight years later, she was walking down the street in Brooklyn when she was jumped and attacked and beaten um, while people were yelling slurs at her and um, her face was disfigured and she has permanent brain damage. Um, she's someone who faces multiple intersectionalities, African-American, female, young, queer, um, poor. And so the reality is we have to do more than just provide a sanctuary because when the person leaves the sanctuary, what's gonna happen to them? So we have to work on the larger changes at the same time so that our greater community can also be safe. So that's a little bit about the shelter. So part of what brought me to the work I now am doing and have been doing for the past 13 years in, in elder care was um, that I was in rabbinical school right in the middle of the HIV AIDS crisis and found myself um, in the village in New York working with pastoral care with a large congregation that at the time of the 1,200 members there, um, 600 were HIV um, positive. And I say that because I came into my work with elders already, the elder population I'd worked with was in the, in the gay world in New York. And so my antenna were up. And then it heightened a little more when I was approached at a national conference and someone said to me after the um, flooding in New Orleans, we have gay activists who have been made homeless, who don't have any savings, we can't find housing, can you help us? And I was able to go just individually to one of our um, subsite senior housing communities and begin to make space there and a welcome there. Um, the range in the system of care we do goes from that experience in housing to um, the next number of experiences I can describe a little bit. One of them um, is in long-term care where many, I'd say a third to half of the folks in, chronic, in a chronic care hospital have some level of dementia. And when your frontal lobe begins to go, um, there's less hiding. And so you have elders who may have been closeted their whole lives or elders who went back into the closet when faced with illness who suddenly can't necessarily have autonomy. And you realize that the world out there is suddenly the world in here. Um, so there's long-term care. And then the 
the turning point also came for me because our system is huge. We have 2,400 employees, uh, people of all different backgrounds. How do you start to change the world that the people we care for live in once they're institutionalized by need? Um, we started a small hospice service. And right around the same time, I, I had a good friend who, when she was dying of cancer, um, her wife felt like she had to almost, she had to hide her identity as her wife when the hospice team came in. Not our hospice team, but I realized there was a whole other piece of the, of the um, spectrum of care that we were doing where um, we needed to make change. And so started the, um, the need to sort of make my way through a, 20, a huge system of care and try and figure out how to transform that culture and make it one in which people could feel at home and as if there were, and, and with healthcare providers. So the context for that is that um, right now there are at least 1.5 million seniors age 65 and older who identify as LGBT um, with projections expected to double by 2030. Uh, LGBT elders often um, don't have immediate family living in the state where they age. People have come to the big city to be able to be more free in their identity. They've left families behind and often have not, of that generation, do not have children. So you're immediately the group that would norm generally in our society provide a bit more of a safety net is, is absent. And so um, there's not the support and there's not necessarily the um, safety net in place. Uh, the other thing is that the, the effects of social isolation um, shows is, is having an impact and there's a growing body of research showing higher rates of depression, other forms of psychiatric um, distress, and people delay going to get care. So you could have a minor condition, but because of fears of what could happen to you once you enter the healthcare system, people come in later. LGBT elders come later to get care, um, which means that conditions are worsened. Um, in a 2010 survey, a bigger study of can you be open, when asked, can you be open with facility staff about your sexual orientation or gender identity, 22% of LGBT elders said yes. Um, looking at the history of this population and what they went through in the 50s and 60s and in the military, in the various wars at times, I mean, there's a reason people are closeted and fearful. Um, when asked, are you afraid of being discriminated against by staff members because of your sexual orientation and or gender identity, 89% say yes. Um, and you can, the it's based on their experiences because when asked if you've actually been mistreated because of your sexual orientation, 43% say yes. So this is what we need to change in healthcare. And by not changing it, people are not only not able to be out and be supported, but are dying of diseases that should be able to be cared for and, not, and with huge disparities in the healthcare they receive. So what I see in these populations that we're serving is there are, among those who are in the closet, who have decades of concealing their identity from families, from peers, from staff, from religious communities, um, there's a lifetime of fear of discrimination and negative reactions that as um, 
so a part of my work has been that religious is, is as a religious leader saying that as religious leaders, we need to take the first step. We need to be there to counter that. And, and amongst our staff, many of whom themselves are called to their work in frontline service healthcare, there's a religious impulse that brings them there. So also being able to model that as religious leaders, we can um, welcome, embrace, support a company. Um, the other group is one that we're out and we're the activists and leading the you know, gay pride marches over the last, I think it's 30 years in Boston, find themselves going into the closet when faced with the lack of, uh, with fear, with pure fear for, have it, for loss of autonomy and as a means of self-protection. So in the range from short-term rehab to acute care to skilled nursing to chronic care, what um, we have been doing is one, beginning with the top staff, with leadership in the organization to present a model, education and work there. The movie Gen Silent, produced by Stu Maddox, is an incredible resource. It tracks four couples, and um, three couples and a trans woman, as they um, enter uh, health, the need for elder care. And it's a very beautifully and um, touching portrayal of real people. And um, I've been using that film a lot to open up people's hearts. Um, it's very hard to get staff time to do these trainings. We've done three, we've trained 350 frontline staff over just the past two months. Prior to that, we were working more in housing. And then working with all the different um, cohorts of staff, because the person in the dining hall, to the per right, it's, it's, it's the world that people now are enclosed within. Um, we've also had to re-go through all of our um, documentation, all of the charting. Like healthcare systems are huge and multi-layered, and it's 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 a full review. Um, the other piece of this, as, as Christy mentioned, is to use our chaplaincies as our chaplains, our chaplains as some of the champions of this work. And so to provide training in the spiritual lives and how to do that work, how to be fully present as people um, do their life review, as people possibly are invited to be trusting in a healthcare environment. Um, last spring in one of our long-term care facilities, we made a big deal about gay pride and for the first time we had small groups of residents who are LGBT coming together and feeling like they could be out among each other and with the staff, which was just a huge step forward for many of their, um, for, for all of them really. Um, so that's the community peer education among the residents also because there's a whole other phenomenon of, of then being the, you know, there's, there's mean girls among the 89-year-olds. And so all of that, that community work that we need to do. And then we're just actually have funding to study this process more such that we can share it with other places um, and with other healthcare systems. So today, as I said, we have residents in long-term care coming, um, connecting more with each other and being out. We have staff being more out. This is a whole other phenomenon. In these trainings um, and 
So we have 450 staff who are um, originally Haitian. And part of it is bringing those people together and having people talk to each other and share their experiences because um, you'll have one staff, because there's the, the training to understand that you can have your beliefs and your culture and come into another place and provide sanctuary um, because you are a healthcare provider and the culture of being a healthcare provider. So we've done a lot of work to help people understand we're not trying to tell them who they are when they go home. But the truth is, as people's hearts are cracked open in this work, um, the caregiver part of them really can grow. And I mean, the moments when I had one woman from the Philippines who in a staff training started to tell the whole group about how when she had um, provided sanctuary to her trans cousin, um, her husband had left and her family had no longer spoken to her. So here we have a staff member with that story who's never also shared it there, as well as um, staff members. I had staff members in their 60s who had been closeted this whole time. The double effect that then happens is these staff members can be out with the patients they're serving, as well as the residents in home care. And so you begin to have the multi-layers of how people can connect. I guess I'll... Um, so, so, and the advanced training we're doing with chaplains is not just for chaplains working in our system, but now those people who have done that training are going out to other systems of care. I'll stop there. Thank you. So, um, one of the questions that I had asked you to think about in advance was a, a question around religious identity. And um, you've both acknowledged that there can be, unfortunately, the dark underbelly of uh, religious trauma um, in this community, and can you tell us a little bit about your religious ethic and um, some of the some of the ways in which you've been able to reconcile um, being a person who has a, a faith identity um, and wants to be a, one who creates sanctuary for people for whom uh, that might be a point of pain. Um, well, when that's one, that was really one of the mot motivating factors for us to open the shelter is that uh, churches have really caused this problem to a great degree. And therefore, as, as a church, a um, community of faith, we, we needed to do something about that. Um, I mean, my understanding of my faith is, is, doesn't allow for hate. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, hating another person or, or abusing another person is like, you know, doing that to God. Um, you know, we, we believe with Jews that we're created in the image of God. Um, you know, Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and Jesus himself, um, with a particular attention to those who people are otherizing and marginalizing. Um, and it, it's just, to me, extremely urgent for communities of faith to kind of rise up against the, the hate that is uh, masquerading as uh, some kind of Christianity or whatever faith background it is. Um, 
I real, I mean, I, one um, young person in our shelter, I mean, a young man in his 20s, told me that he had heard in a sermon, I mean, he was, or not in a sermon, but after a sermon, he talked to the pastor who told him, you know, he was going to hell and the demons were going to be pouring hot oil over him and the devil was going to fix it so that his nerve endings, you know, would not be damaged and he would feel intense pain for all eternity. And he said to me that, I mean, part of him didn't, you know, believe this, but there was just that, like, little question, like, what if it's true, though? And he told me he, had, he couldn't be intimate because every time it just came to his, this image, um, that had, kind of like this sermonic image came to his mind that, you know, what if it's true? And, uh, and the other thing about that is, although I, I think there are very few pulpits where somebody gets up and actually says, you should go out and kill people. Um, there's no question in my mind that um, religious talk that, you know, it can start out, this is bad, this is of the devil, um, you, uh, real men or women don't act like this, which then becomes dehumanizing. I mean, the Nazis used the term, I think it was untermenschen, um, subhuman. You know, you dehumanize a person, you demonize a person, and that creates an atmosphere uh, that allows for the murder of, um, well, you know, of queer people, which is happening. All the, I mean, it's happening, uh, I, I think, since the beginning of the year, eight transgender women have been murdered, um, maybe more. But um, I, I call that homiletical homicide. I mean, I think our, our religious institutions are guilty for that. And, and we have to act and speak out against it. Um, and so I, so the idea like, well, we all have different thoughts about it. We can't, let's just agree to disagree. I think at one point I might have felt that way, but I don't feel that way now because the, I don't think that it's an option to see people as less than um, because that's what my faith tradition says. I can't accept it because I see it causing violence and, and death. So I feel um, as a person of faith, and, and also, I mean, it's such a terrible witness that, I mean, a lot of people have no interest in, um, I don't know how it affects Jews, but Christians, they don't want to go to church because they see the church as, as being a hateful place. And too often it has been and is. So uh, I feel very, but, but, and it causes people to be killed. So I think it's urgent that we resist that and speak out against that and work to change that. So Judaism is, is, is culture and history and also belief. And in the home I grew up in, a big part about being a Jew was about just simply taking the side of the underdog. And it seemed like that was the world too because, for example, in my public school in Toronto, um, the teacher who was the one Jewish teacher 
in the school was also the one lesbian teacher in the school, and she was the one who got fired for being lesbian, but it seemed like it was just all wrapped up together. So I admit that this, so the culture of, of being the underdog and standing up for the other underdog felt like a huge part of what my Jewish upbringing um, was about. That said, um, yeah, this Judaism and religious Judaism has been a major culprit in, um, in condemning homosexuality and LGBT um, people. It's, it's such a, I mean, we have these thick stories of our pasts, though, and the amount, and there's so much richness also in um, the stories and the culture and in re-understanding those religious sources to be inclusive and to look back to a creation story that's not about a binary of, of male and female and a sexual binary as well. Um, so I think it is upon us to go to the core of our teachings and to not accept the history necessarily as we know it, but to rewrite that history. Um, one of the really interfaith or, or uh, Christian um, and Jewish um, terms, the love your neighbor as yourself, um, when you look at that line, um, it doesn't mean to love your neighbor in the same way as we love ourselves. Um, as it is so often used. Um, Buber, Buber wrote in a midrash, in a story about this line, a merchant once came to Rabbi Meir Shalom, a son of Rabbi Yehoshua Asher, and complained of another merchant who had opened his shop right next door to him. You seem to think, said the tzaddik, that it is your shop that supports you and are setting your heart upon it instead of God who gives you support. Perhaps you do not know where God lives. It is written, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. This means you shall want for your neighbor what your neighbor needs, just as you do for yourself, and therein you will find the Lord. So re-understanding the golden rule for minorities and for marginalized identities is not about treating your neighbor as you would want to be treated. It's rather to want for her what she needs. But that's only half of it. Um, if you look at the Hebrew, it's unclear whether the like yourself modifies how you love or who you love. And so you have this first analysis of love your neighbor as you love, want for yourself, love your neighbor as you love yourself, meaning you want for yourself what you need, want for the other what the other needs, as I just said. The second analysis is love your neighbor because your neighbor is like you. And when you look at that, it pushes us to find in the other person that piece, that common thread of humanity, but also how to feel akin to that person, how to identify with them, how to stand in their shoes, how to bring out true empathy, not just identifying with universal suffering, but the burden of really understanding another individual and being able to share their burden um, such that you can carry that with them. So that's a core teaching for me in looking more deeply at how it 
um, can impact who we are in the world. Um, another, that value can help us overcome in this community, I think, some of the isolation and, and find that place of connection. Um, so I understand my rabbinate to be about community activism and social change, um, about the need to overcome the history of, of, of undermining and, and oppressing others. I also, um, my grandmother's generation and were part of the resistance in Germany, and I feel like that's a standard that, that I and we have to live up to. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. That's a lot to live up to. Um, what are some of the, the recommendations that you would have for, um, for those people here or even the people you work with who are looking to connect their own religious and sexual and gender identities to action for the greater good? Um, what are some of the practical practical steps or skills or um, ways in which um, you would encourage people to try to help create sanctuary? Um, I think a really key thing um, is networking and collaborating. When, when we were thinking about starting, it seemed impossible that we didn't have the resources needed. Uh, we were a small church with a deficit. Um, the, the whole thing seemed beyond us. And what I like to think is that the, the we, the small letter we, became the big we. We were, we were thinking too small when we were saying we can't do it. We couldn't do it, but we could do it when we became a, a, a larger group. Um, a lot of the things that we've been able to do are related to collaborations with other groups, finding other people that you know, might not share a spiritual base at all, but have similar passions and concerns. Um, but that, find, find other people, if you, know, you want to start something, um, find other people, you know, even two or three. I mean, in, when we started the shelter, there were, there were three of us that really worked closely together. And I mean, now there's, we've probably worked with thousands of people, but it started with three, but it couldn't have started with one. You know, it really needed a small group uh, of people who brought different things to the table um, and who could continue to encourage one another and um, inspire one another. So I would say that's the first step. Find other people that share or I'm not necessarily that share your vision, but that you can work on that vision together, but share some of your, your passion uh, to do something and work together. I think that's, that's key. The, the, the first thing on my list was a lot of bridge building and translating um, because too often we're separate. And I, I, Boston has a very... Um, one of the newer rabbinical schools, and every student I meet with has come into it because they want to build their own project to do X. And that's fantastic, but I think there's, I found in my own um, work that you can start small, but you can also enter into the bigger 
I mean, I, I kind of joined the elephant and have been now directing the elephant and, and that in the room, so to speak. And, and I think that um, too often we think we have to sort of be on the outside and we are needed on the inside. Um, and when we really live our truths, that has an incredible impact on the people around you. Um, and also, also thinking, thinking long-term visions and, and being willing to just keep working at it. Um, the credibility you can build in a community and then the change you can make over time. Um, just the staying power and the resilience is gonna be, is, is really important more so right now, I think, than ever. Um, we don't have the problem at Duke of people wanting to create their own things instead of joining and instead of directing the elephant. Um, I'm going <laughs> to ask one last question that um, I didn't prompt you with in advance, and then I'm going to, and that's the prompt for you all to be thinking about your own questions because after the answer to this last one, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Um, at, the, at the beginning of what you said, Heidi, you. Um, you referenced uh, the changing landscape in this country. And I wonder if you two have any thoughts on or are noticing um, new concerns and um, in light of the new administration and um, where you're seeing that impact your work. Um, well, my congregation um, also has, we have worship in English and in Spanish and our Spanish language worshipers are mostly undocumented. And um, so that's different than the, well, it's in, there's the intersection of topics, right? But I mean, in terms of the people that are really um, terrified, um, that, that will be that group of people. But the young people in our shelter, um, we've only, I mean, we have one person who's undocumented right now. Most are not. Um, as I said, with uh, uh, there's fear that this, you know, gender law is um, is not going to pass, or that federally there there's that there's just going to be a lot more legislated discrimination, and um, and less legal support. So so people that already felt very vulnerable um, now feel more vulnerable. So it's just, it's a very it's a very scary time. I mean, that, that would be the bottom line, feeling more exposed and more vulnerable and that there'll be less um, public support. You, you would think in Massachusetts we would um, have it <laughs> at least a little more protection, but I think there's tremendous fear about Medicare and Medicaid um, and the future of people's care. And I see it in among our staff, people live with very little margin. And so when you're already sending a paycheck to someone in another country, sending part of your, a portion of your paycheck to someone in another country, and you're trying to, to manage young children, and you're trying to you know, work as a nursing aide or, or in, our, in our kitchens, and then you add to that 
the sibling or parent or cousin who suddenly is facing deportation or can no longer come and doesn't have the and needs health care. I mean, it's it's disastrous for everyone who's just close, even though they themselves may not have their status threatened. Just that one more piece on the scale of what allows you to manage, and um, that just causes added stress in the system. I, I the level of just illness among our employees, just literally being home with the flu, has gone up. Um, so the cost to the organization in those ways, and then the stress that people bring to work, um, you can, it's palpable. Also in New York City, um, stop and frisk, which particularly targets um, young African-American and le lesser, but still, well, young men of color. Um, so there was a somewhat of a decrease of stop and frisk, and that we're not supposed to be doing that. Um, but now stop and frisk is getting, you know, support. So for, I mean, most of the young people in our shelter are young people of color. And it, it, it's just another area of vulnerability where, you know, the, the people that are maybe supposed to be uh, helping you out are given more, more free reign to, um, to violate that trust. And the other thing that's happened, though, is our organization has stepped up to the challenge and has really been trying to do everything possible to assure employees that we'll do everything to help them. We've had huge donations to our employee help fund and, and ways that the community is sort of stepping up to say, we need each other. Heidi, have you seen greater giving um, supporting the shelter? Uh, yeah, slightly. Do you all have questions? Rabbi, what would you say is the one thing that chaplains in senior care can be doing to radiate an atmosphere of safe space for gay seniors? I, I think being I think changing, just being open in your language with staff in ways that doesn't assume husbands, wives, the gender or sexual or gender orientation or sexuality of children, just to really rewrite your script and model that. Because sometimes staff really don't even know what the other staff won't, it hasn't occurred to them to, and don't have models for that. So if we can become the person who just, you know, asks, um, doesn't make those assumptions and isn't in, and, and just with anyone and just make that part of the walk you're walking, that goes a long way. Yes, Josh. Joshua, you don't need a microphone. Um, uh, the location is on um, West 100th Street between Amsterdam and Columbus. It was not a location chosen. Um, 
it, the only reason, it's the church. It's, it's because it's the space we had. And it was just saying that um, it started out when there was a call that went out to religious institutions during the coldest months of the year where there, there just so many people were being turned away from other shelters because there wasn't space saying, would you take seven young people for seven nights um, and hoping that a lot of people would open their doors. And, um, and for us, it was like, oh, we can do that. Even though we don't think we can do a big thing, we can do that. And there were only three um, churches in the whole city that agreed to do it. And, and then we just went on from there saying, how many churches um, are empty all night? Why are all these buildings empty when there's this need? So we, you know, that's the reason for our location. How radical to make your place of worship open <laughs> other than just during your worship times. <laughs> um, what a concept. What, are, what, was the, um, what have been the major points of challenge or pushback for both of you in the changes that you've tried to make in the communities that you're working in? about Sunday school space being used for? No, the pushback um, hasn't come from, from the congregation. Um, that was a long history of um, the, you know, for that, that wasn't an issue. I mean, the, the pushback is in the larger community of the things that young people face. I think one, one learning for me um, and challenge for us was that early on, we didn't have a lot of funding. So we, our staff was very minimal and we had um, a, a member of the church who was a social, and I should say this shelter is a separate 501c3 and is not religious. Um, but a member of our church who was a social worker is one of the founders. I mean, he worked a 40 hour job or more. He worked a full-time job and then spent at least 40 hours a week pro bono at the beginning. I mean, at the beginning, the three of us spent a huge amount of time pro bono, and we had one overnight um, person who was a college student um, who was really great, but I mean, he wasn't um, a professional social worker. Uh, and then one night a week, his night off, we had trained volunteers. During that time, and my house parsonage where I live is attached to the church. During the first three years, that the shelter opened and we didn't have enough funding. Um, I mean, multiple nights a week, the doorbell would ring at one in the morning or two in the morning or midnight, either with young people from the shelter trying to triangulate with Max, who was the overnight person coming to ring my doorbell and complain about Max, or I'd get phone calls from Max. You know, I don't know what to do. Um, once we had enough money to hire um, trained social workers, that has never happened again. And it shows, and I will say that just having goodwill and being kind and compassionate is not enough. Um, and I know th two other churches that tried to do something similar and it imploded. And I think it imploded because the boundaries weren't clear enough. And it's, there are times when, um, we, you know, we have a kind of 
I mean, under certain circumstances, somebody will have to be involuntarily discharged from the shelter. It doesn't happen a lot, but it can happen. And there are times when I'm thinking like, oh, just give them one more chance, you know? And the social worker will be, no, they've had whatever these, I mean, I would say, oh no. I think if it were up to me, the shelter wouldn't be there anymore. So it, it's a combination of that caring and compassion along with some very clear boundaries and having that combination of, of really excellent professional staff has, has made all the difference in the world. I, I, the biggest um, pushback has been around why this issue and not why aren't we doing racism training? Why aren't we doing anti-racism training? Why aren't we doing, you know, um, more language, you know, equality, all of those. So it's the, that classic sort of why this issue. And I just decided very early that I wasn't going to try and argue that. I was just going to say, because there's a community in Boston that has come to us and asked us to. And it's true. There's a real need for housing. So I just sort of, it's not, we'll get to everything else. We're not trying, but just very practical, not get into the whole intersectionality mess. And just from the residents to the staff to just say, you know what, we'll get there. You open the door and, ev and everyone can walk through. But right now, this is how we're opening the door because we have people waiting outside. And so just to keep it very practical and, and not be um, trying to uh, compare or show the Im greater importance of one thing or another has been a critical part of moving this along. Um, yeah, I think that's fine. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Um, I'm over in the Divinity School, so training um, as a part of that to be a religious leader. And so was wondering um, in what ways your identity as, a, as women um, has impacted your leadership in both a religious sphere around these issues and just in general as you are embarking in new um, parts of education and whether they're in both positive and in negative ways, if there are any. And I want to add a question to that. How did I couldn't your, hear that. You didn't as hear women, her question? How it's impacted us. What? Oh, being women. Um, how has your identity as women um, impacted your leadership, uh, both in the religious side of things and also embarking in these movements, uh, both in positive and in negative ways, uh, if there are any? And I want to add to that, how did your theological training prepare you for the work you're doing today? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'll take the, you can go first on the, on the, on the women front. Um, it was sort of stunning to realize when I began work in elder care, um, just how little feminism is aware of the fact that more than two thirds of, of Americans age 85 and older are women. And then you, add to that the fact that there is more chronic disease and health problems for older women than there are, I think it's, there's 60% more chance of a woman needing assistance but, um, at those ages. Uh, our 
our skilled nursing facilities are women's communities. <laughs> and no one, I just hadn't, no one's really named that that I know of and said, let's go be feminist in those, in those environments. Um, not to mention um, two thirds of the providers are women. So it's, it's, a, it's a weighted place. Um, so that is one piece of just sort of opening up our understanding and understanding then the role of women in those, in those communities. Um, I think religiously what's been profound about meeting that group is that there's sort of the, um, the idea that there are advantages to being the um, classic vision of rabbi, whatever that is that comes into your head. And it's really liberating for older women to actually be able to identify with their rabbi and to see the progress that's been made in terms of, their, of the access to religious education within the Jewish world for women. And so there's just a starting place of hope just by being there as someone who has made those strides um, within the community. Do you want to answer that one and then we'll come to theological education? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, two things. Well, one related to the last thing you said. Um, I have found that although there's certainly, although including the stories I shared of very rejecting mothers, um, that for many of the young people in our shelter, um, I'm less threatening as, as a woman. Um, and, and so that's been a helpful thing. I think I've also learned in terms of kind of a failure of feminism that I was less acutely aware of um, that as a white and cisgender woman, which I mean, I don't even know that phrase um, a few years ago, um, you just can't, I mean, I'm very privileged and it's not enough, you know, just to be feminist. That, that those, um, that issues of class and race and, um, and gender identification, I mean, those are, those are central. Um, so that's, I, I, that's a big failure I still see in a lot of feminism. Um, that I think we need to look at. Training. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, I think that the, I had to really fight in the movement I went to I, as, as someone who was ordained in the conservative movement at a time when the seminary was not yet ordaining LGBT people and where, um, the halachic, the legal process was very much in flux around how to address even just women in the rabbinate. Um, so I think in that way, in the course of having to enter into, I, I wanted the really, I want, I, I, there were reasons I needed to be there in terms of my own um, observance of the Sabbath and, and Jewish um, culture and law. And I also felt like as a feminist, um, that I needed to be able to get the training there to be able to talk to the people I wanted to talk to. So it did give me that. It gave me the um, ability to enter into, as I said, you know, as I talked about entering inside the system to make change. So I got that vocabulary, I got that learning, 
that gives me my chit to come through the door. Um, and I also became very aware of what the struggle was. <laughs> I think for me, um, probably the most important part of my seminary education that was, that was helpful, which um, was when I did one year of seminary in Argentina and um, at an ecumenical seminary, that was very involved. It was, it was the last year um, under the dictatorship, and right before I got there, the government burned that firebomb the library. So people were really putting their lives on the line, um, you know, for social change. And I found that really invigorating and powerful and inspiring. Um, I mean, people were, you know, were being murdered for, for their, because their faith was connected to um, human rights and social justice. Can you please share some of the stories or ways that young people and older people are sharing about their spiritual journey. Maybe when things were difficult at entry point and then when they're about to leave your program for the younger folks. And then just sort of maybe some stories from the beginning of educating staff and making opportunities to what it is now. Um, well, I, there, were, there was a, a young woman, trans woman when she came, I mean, she, she was, so had a lot of self-hatred and was very depressed, very traumatized, uh, very closed in among herself. And as I said, our shelter is, is non-sectarian. I mean, we, you know, and we, I, you know, don't say come to church at all, although they know they can. And um, this young woman, Victoria, asked me, asked me to um, do a, for, well, to be baptized, except, you know, she had been baptized, but she'd been baptized, you know, as a male. And so we did a, um, an affirmation of baptism um, with her, with her new name and her, and her with, with the sense that, well, God already knew who she was all along. It wasn't God's problem, it was everybody else's. And, um, and I mean, she just, she just really blossomed um, over, over the time, and that was kind of a culmination of it, of, of allowing um, the, the spiritual part of her life, which had been part of her sense of, of, of being less than human. Um, you know, I remember, adding some, we have a ceremony of reaffirmation of baptism, but I adjusted it. And I remember, this isn't in our normal ceremony, but saying, um, you know, your name being written in heaven. And it, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, I admit we're being, tell, we're being recorded and I am nervous about speaking about particular stories a little bit. Um, just given the, the um, number of people and 
the community I'm talking about. But in terms of themes, I'm now so much more aware of people who have lived their whole life um, in one gender, and it's only when upon the death of a spouse or when parents die that there can be um, an exploration of self in a different way and an expression of self in another way. And it's, I think it's almost, there's, it's almost like we don't have to we don't have to open our doors to the people out there. The people are in here. They're still, they just haven't had the freedom to be who they are. Um, and that's a big turning point in a, in a community to realize that it's not they, it's us. Um, and that's true also for the idea that somehow, you know, just because someone was in a 50 year straight marriage that they are straight, right? So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's all um, that opening up has, has really spoken inside our communities as well as allowing space for people to enter in. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are all areas that we um, work with people to explore. Um, I mean, it, it's, it, this can, if you've ever walked through a nursing home, there can be someone who is totally angry and distrustful of the staff, right? And when the chaplain can link with that person, can join with that person, often what's being expressed towards the staff there is actually deep distrust that is true for all their relationships, might, might be rooted in their relationship with their daughter, or, or, and may also come back to, if they have a religious background, their, their relationship with God. And so when you begin to understand, so when we do a spiritual assessment after meeting with, um, that list is in, our, is in your head as someone's telling their stories, and you walk away in yourself and say, okay, I'm gonna, they really are, are struggling with identity, identity issues, or trust issues, or this, and, and in, among LGBTQ elders, um, the prevalence of, um, you can imagine, men, the love and belonging about from the isolation, trust with staff members, identity. I mean, these are very core places to explore as a chaplain and to be there to, to accompany a person. And, and that's a really rich journey. Thank you. <laughs> And you get the last question. I knew that. I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about what I might do as an individual, what I might do within an organization, a church or place of worship, to reach out to others, to build bridges, to collaborate, to move into a place of greater safety and sanctuary in our world. Defending question, go ahead. Yeah. I think it, it requires, um, I think people, not, not everybody, but the people who would want to collaborate um, respond to, vulner to vulnerability. I mean, I feel like um, 
the changes that have taken place in the Lutheran Church, which did not ordain, uh, you know, you couldn't you couldn't be openly partnered in a same gender relationship um, and be ordained until 2009. I think that change came because of people um, taking a lot of risks, uh, which you can't tell anyone to do. But um, as as people did did that, it made a difference. Um, so reaching out. I mean, I, I, I go back to fi making, finding collaborators with you to do that work. And, and finding them, you know, takes a certain amount of risk because someone could, could not be interested or reject one. But I think that's, that's a first step. I, I, um... I think that sometimes there's an assumption that as people grow older, their ideas become more rigid and they actually, and they become more conservative. And the reality is actually that people are opening up in new ways or learning from the wisdom of their lives. And when we, when we created a, a program to bring the local high school's Gay Straight Alliance into our Subsize Senior Housing site to just create friendships, it's the, it's the, most easy thing in the world on some level, and yet it broke down a wall. And, and suddenly those elders there are talking to their grandchildren in a different way because they've had a very unthreatening grandchild who is trans to talk through their, to, to just share and understand. And now when their grandchild is trans, it's much easier for them. So just the, we got to get rid of the islands and the walls. And, and those things are not so hard. There, there's low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Thank you both for um, coming down and traveling to be with us and share with us tonight. Thank you to you all for taking time out of um, your spring break preparation plans to be with us. Um, can you join me in thanking our speakers? Thank you, and we'll see you on April 24th um, for Valerie.